Well, good morning. My name's Kevin. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here. It is great to be here worshiping and getting to jump into God's Word this morning. It is such a privilege. I'm excited to continue this series called Backstory, where we're looking at the lives of some, some people in uh, Scripture that hopefully can help us uh, uh, lead our lives a little bit better, help us see God a little bit clearer. Uh, to begin with, I want to ask a question. Have you ever unwittingly annoyed someone? Like, you're just being you, and then all of a sudden, like, you realize the vibe in the room has shifted, and it's a little bit tense, and you're kind of not sure how you got there, but uh, you're definitely there. Picture this. The Hackett family is getting ready to go on one of our uh, family adventures, a little day trip, nothing to get too uh, bent out of shape about. But for me, I'm all about getting prepared. I'm all about checking all the boxes, getting everything uh, ready that we need, all of our supplies, all of our snacks, obviously. Everything has to come together perfectly so we can avoid any uh, you know, possible mishaps during our little day trip. Now, jump into the mind of my wife, Catherine. She's like, let's go. We are wasting daylight. Come on, let's get this show on the road. We got to go. Now, that's just what's going on in the minds of the two adults in the situation. We have four kids, one teenager, and a dog now in the equation. I'm not even going to touch that. Just with the two adults in the room, we have one person whose giftedness is in efficiency and speed. Let's go. And we have one person whose giftedness is in effectiveness, making sure we have everything uh, figured out, making sure we have all the T's crossed, the I's dotted. So you can picture where this is headed. Nothing wrong with being efficient, nothing wrong with being effective, but suddenly our gifts are colliding. One person wants it done one way, one person wants it done another way, and you can see where this is going. We're headed towards something potentially nuclear and then a very quiet car ride <laughs> to our trip. Okay, so you've got to see here that just because we have gifts doesn't mean they're always directed towards positive ends. Unguarded gifts can actually lead to big bad. Unguarded gifts have potential to do good and bad. And when it comes to, when it comes to our gifts, it's unwise to be unguarded. See, some of our greatest strengths are also our greatest liabilities. You know that. You've experienced that, I'm sure. But when it comes to our gifts, unwise, it can be, it can be unwise to be unguarded. Unguarded gifts have the potential to do big bad. And we're going to see that play out in our scripture this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But as we get ready to head there, as you turn there in your Bibles, uh, I, wanna, I want us to ask a few questions. I want, we have to ask ourselves as we go through this text, where do my strengths get directed? Where, where am I aiming my strengths? To what ends 
do they serve? Who or what are my gifts serving? Now, the backstory of humanity, as we've covered in the opening weeks of this series, if you've been with us, is humanity gets created. We get stamped with God's image. And we are set apart as very good. All of God's creation is called good, but humankind is called very good. And we're given every opportunity to go God's way and serve under God's authority and under his definition of what's good and bad. But since Adam and Eve, we've kind of assumed that we know best. The way we see it is right. And our choices start to kind of edge out God. As a result, we end up breaking promises, oppressing people, and tarnishing the image of God. We're confronted with the reality of depravity and dignity, all in the same place. Depravity and dignity dwelling in the same place. And a a few weeks ago, Tim even asked the question, hey, can we let the good be good and the bad be good? be bad. Getting at that tension. Well, this morning, I want us to ask, how can we keep what's good for us from being bad for others? How can we keep what's good for us from being bad for others? We're looking at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 is where we're going to be starting. And I think this cautionary account of David's story can help us learn the easy way instead of the hard way. If we'll just listen to the story, we'll just observe what happens here. My hope is that we can avoid the tragedy, but at the same time, have hope for even when we do mess up. And even when we mess up big. In David's backstory, we find a boy who's skilled in all that it means to be a shepherd. He's a protector. He's a guide. He knows what it means to lead his flock and look out for their best interests. He's killed lions and bears. He's taken down giants at this point. He's a boy after God's own heart that becomes a man after God's own heart. And he's made king by the people. And he continues to lead out of those gifts. He continues to lead with the aim of making much of God, with elevating God's name, with protecting God's reputation if it's threatened. And this is where we pick up the story. God has blessed David Blessings and successes come David's way because of the way that he's lived. And here we start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
with words like destroyed and in some translations ravaged, you get the sense that, that David is overcoming his enemies with authority, with decisive victory. David has not only been chosen by the people, but he's been anointed by God as well. And it seems that nothing can stand in his way. There's nothing that David can't do. Unfortunately, David forgets who he is. He forgets where he's come from. He forgets his roots as a shepherd, as a worshiper of God. And he gets unguarded and does something that he should never do. His power and strength get aimed at self-serving ends. No longer is he thinking about the best interests of people. No longer is he thinking about God's great name being elevated. A good gift is about to go bad. And listen to what the text says in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. Now, David's focus has shifted from protecting the people, from making God's name great, to serving his own selfish aims. Some time passes, and then David gets the news. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. For most of us, that's good news. In this case, not good news. So David does what maybe you and I would be tempted to do in a similar situation. He handles it. He said, I'm gonna, I'll take care of this. I'll figure it out. He does whatever he can do to save face. He, he minimizes it. He suppresses it. He does what he needs to do, which involves killing a man. David takes advantage of his power. And suddenly his gifts are leveraged for evil. I wonder, have you ever seen pain or hurt caused by your gifts? You didn't try to. You didn't even do it on purpose. You didn't really even think about what you were doing. But have you ever seen pain or hurt caused by your gifts? Now, we may not be in the same situation. We may not be in the same situation as David. We may not have the same kind of power that he does. We might not be tempted in the same way that he was to fall in the same uh, extraordinary and tragic fashion that he did. But I, I don't know about you, but I can relate 
to causing pain to others when my gifts have served the wrong ends. In the early years of my marriage with Catherine, we were both coaching soccer. We both love soccer. We're both incredibly competitive, if you can imagine. The crazy thing is, Catherine always manages to keep her cool. She's always level, and me, not so much. I remember one particular indoor practice. We were playing, it was intense, tense competition between uh, the students on the, the players on the team and, and everybody was involved, everybody was amped. And I had this glorious play in mind. It was awesome, I had worked it up in my mind in a split second, I was ready to make this play, and bam, somebody stepped in, smashed my toe with their foot. Oh, the mixture of pain and frustration of not being able to make that play, and I lost it. I mean, I went straight towards the bleachers and just slammed them as hard as I could. Imagine the echo in the gym, reverbing out. I didn't really think much of it, and we continued playing. It wasn't until afterwards, in a really intense conversation with Catherine, that I realized the damage that I had done. See, I had scared kids on the team. I had embarrassed my wife. I kind of made a fool of myself as well. I had to be confronted with the impact of what I had done. Now, I wanted to just escape it. I wanted to minimize it. I wanted to sweep it under the rug. I wanted to say, big deal. This is what happens in sports. It's called passion. I wanted to make an excuse for that behavior. But then later, it was like, oh, man, I think I really messed up. That's not really that awesome. And I went the complete other direction. I said, you know what? Maybe I'll just give up. I'll give up coaching. I'll give up playing soccer. That, that will be the end. That will be the end of it for me. But is that what God wants? Is that what God wants for us? To just quit when we mess up? I don't think so. He wants us to lead and use our gifts and talents, even if they have the potential to do harm. We may think we can get there by minimizing the pain we've caused or covering it up and trying to fix it ourselves, but we can't. We have to face it. We have to own it. And most importantly, we need outside help. And we see God's grace in this very outside help, as David's advisor, Nathan, steps in and helps David see the damage he's done, much like the way Catherine did and continues to do for me. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger. He burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Nathan sets up the confrontation brilliantly and courageously. And with those famous words, you are that man, he brings the unavoidable truth to David's eyes, right in front of his face, that you've stolen, you've killed, and you've destroyed and corrupted a family that isn't even your own. These are the tragic gifts of, un- these are the tragic results of unguarded gifts, gifts directed at the wrong ends. But the story isn't over. Then we see David own it. Then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this time David doesn't try to minimize it. He doesn't make promises that he'll do better and work harder at being good. He doesn't give up or check out. He's already tried all that. And if we look at his poetry, we see inside the heart and mind of David in the intimate details of Psalm 51. Now, If you'll bear with me, I'm going to read this psalm. If you would, just close your eyes and let the words, let the poetry sink in. Close your eyes, listen to these words, let them kind of wash over your mind and your heart. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Block out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified. When you judge, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. See, restoration is a process of returning and re-engaging with the Lord. And as you open your eyes back up again, if some of you still have them closed, maybe you're taking a nap, that's fine. Um, as we, as we re-engage with God, as we re-engage with worshiping Him, allowing Him to wash us white as snow, then our lives become redirected back to what they were always intended to be for. Restoration includes discipline, and there are consequences. If you read the story, you know that it's not all sunshine and roses for David and his family moving forward from here. But it doesn't end at consequences. It doesn't end at that pain. See, restoration involves learning and growing and truly seeing ourselves as God sees us. The atrocities of David's abuse of power can't be swept under the rug and dismissed out of sight. Change is required. Many of the Psalms David composed and the narrative after this are testimony to the growing and the learning that David underwent. We see a man who knows he's ultimately accountable to God and is humbled enough to come under God's authority to worship and serve God again. David reconnects with who he is and where he comes from. He's a shepherd, a leader, a protector, a God worshiper. And eventually... If you know the story, he's going to end up offering up his life for the sake of his people. For the sake of following his God and making much of him. So which way will you go? What ends will your gifts end up serving? How will you keep your good ambition pointed at what's ultimately good? Like I said, my hope is that we don't have to learn the hard way, but by stepping and learn the hard way by stepping into those, the dark side of our gifts, or by playing it safe and, and never stepping in at all. But you have a choice in the way you go. You have a choice in the direction you point your gifts, even after your gifts have gone wayward. You can suppress your, your strengths for fear of hurting someone. You can minimize the sin. You can minimize the impact of your sin on God and on others. You can make promises to yourself and say, well, I, I, I'm not really going to repent, but I, I promise myself I'll never do it again. Or you can choose to seek self-awareness and even better, spiritual awareness. The kind of spiritual awareness we see 
David expressing in his psalms. The reality is our good God giftedness can cause big good or big bad. It's neutral. Unchecked ambition can quickly become selfish, harmful, and even deadly. The stakes are really high on this one. Thankfully, the storyline of depravity and tragedy doesn't end with, you are that man. David gets another chance to lead in his gifts, in God's way. When David re-engaged with God, with his gifts, his leadership, his artistry of song and poetry, he's not met by a vengeful and condemning God but a heavenly father who doesn't accept David's failure as a final death of his gifts. He's met by a God who restores, a God who always delivers on his promise, a God who promised a future king who would do what no other king had ever done or will ever do again. David's reinstated in a storyline of redemption that gets woven in and overpowers the storyline of tragedy. What if we could avoid some of that tragedy, though? Some of that pain? What if we were guarded with our gifts? What would that look like? What if we were intentional about putting systems and people in place who could help us see ourselves and keep us accountable? Could this be one of the major benefits of church community? Of connect groups? Where we can be open and honest with one another. Where we can hold one another accountable. Where we can have those conversations. That help us avoid stepping unwittingly into foolish and hurtful behavior. Are we as a church a place and a people who are helping each other see ourselves more clearly so we don't have to keep learning the hard way? Are we helping each other see where we've been unguarded? Are we courageously bringing the wisdom of God to bear on our lives within trusted fellowship and community to remind us that the messing up doesn't have to be the end of our gifts or cause us to never step in. For me, after my family has rushed out of the house and my cautious, deliberate analyzer gifts have done their work and we're sitting in that silent, kind of awkward, tense space, I have a choice. I can ignore it. I can minimize it. I can make promises to myself that ah, I'm never going to do that again. Or I can face it. I can own it. I can engage with a God that is full of grace. I can engage in conversation with the people that I've hurt. 
that might mean having a hard conversation or entering a difficult process. But this is how restoration leads to life. This is how restoration leads to a life that is abundant, a life to the full. So again, we'll go with this question, what ends will your gifts end up serving? What will your next step be in the storyline of redemption? How will you keep your good ambition pointed at what's ultimately good? What ends will your gifts end up serving? Will you seek to repair what's broken on your own? Or will you seek help? Will you lean into Jesus to fix what only he can? Will you lean into a group of trusted friends who have your best in mind and are courageous enough to hold you accountable? Will you step back onto the field, back into the game, back into using your gifts for the sake of making much of God's name? Don't let the liability potential of your strengths keep you from leveraging them for kingdom potential. Look to Jesus who redeems even out of tragedy and gives us hope for the story yet to be written. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love and mercy and great grace that we can step into so that we can know that our life is not over when we fail, when we mess up, even when we mess up big. God, thank you for the story of David that, that helps us see and feel and experience the, the damages that can be done when our gifts get directed in the wrong direction. God, I pray that you would help, help us see ourselves clearer. Help us see you clearer. Let us lean into you and your grace. Help us to find the places and the people that we can be open and honest with, that we can share our story with. The good stuff and the bad stuff. God, I pray that as we become more attuned to you, as the people around us continue to encourage and show us who we are and who you are, that we would begin to worship you, that our lives would be all about worshiping you and making much of your name. God, help us to move on from failure, not by sweeping it under the rug, but by dealing with it, by facing it, by owning it, and moving forward in your grace and your mercy and love for the sake of others and for the sake of your great name. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.